Okay. All right. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Um, I know this day is particularly special to me um, as this is our first Father's Day for uh, number three. And so uh, third Father's Day in a row, that's that's obviously extra impactful for me personally. But, um, but yeah, so happy Father's Day to everyone. And, you know, one of the things I love about Father's Day is that it's a time that everybody um, rallies around their family. And, and so it's really encouraging to see everybody um, here with their with their family. And I know that we have other people that went to churches um, where their family goes. And so that's a special time. And so... Um, but today we're going to dive into uh, continuing our series on the Beatitudes, and today we're looking at a particularly uh, impactful one for me, uh, just because I believe it's it gets to the root of a lot of things in our life that uh, it just kind of has branches that reach into every aspect of our life. And so we're going to start out, uh, I'm going to pray for us again, and then uh, we're going to dive right in. Um, and if you don't know me, by the way, I'm, I'm Trey uh, Lewis. Uh, I've been a member here for about five years. And this, interestingly enough, this is my last Sunday at this church. My wife and I are moving. Um, so uh, this is a particularly emotional Sunday for both of us. Um, this church has been home for us. Uh, you know, my, my daughter's best friend goes to this church. Um, some of the best friends we've ever had are Aaron and, and Layla. So... Uh, be patient with me today as we are going through a particularly emotional time, uh, leaving a special community for us. So, um, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the honor of uh, just being a part of this church, for uh, the honor of being a father. Um, God, I know that it's the wish of every father in this room to, uh, to emulate you. And, you know, you, you say that, you know, you know, we don't even have a clue how to give good gifts to our own children. Um, so how much more um, do, are you going to give us good gifts as we try to? So, God, I just pray that we would emulate you. Um, and I just uh, pray that your, your words would speak through me today and that uh, you would bless this time. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I know I butchered that that part, that as we try to give good gifts, um, we fall short even, and God is uh, never gives um, bad gifts to us, and so we, we try to emulate him in that. But All right, so we're going to dive in, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and this is continuing a series on the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are uh, a core part of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus has given this, this core sermon. You know, one of the interesting things I've always thought about the Sermon on the Mount is that, um, you know, Gandhi used to keep a copy of the Sermon on the Mount with him at all times. Uh, it's, it's even amongst people that don't follow the Christian religion, they have found this passage um, beautiful, uh, which I've always thought was very interesting. And I think because there's just a lot there. There's a lot there that we can learn from, that we can um, take away. And so this passage alone, as I was going through it, it was very apparent to me that we could spend the next five weeks just preaching from one verse. There's so much here. Um, and so, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what does it mean to be meek? 
This is an interesting word for us. A lot of us maybe aren't familiar with this word. Um, we've heard this, this word many times growing up. Um, but, but, you know, if you're like me, um, growing up, I didn't really have a good con, uh, concept of, of what it actually meant to be meek. Well, in this passage here, something that I didn't realize until you know, recently was that it's almost certain that Jesus was quoting Psalm 37, 11, which reads, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Um, the ESV study Bible defines the meek as the gentle who do not assert themselves in order to, uh, over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. The gentle who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. Webster's Dictionary lists a more familiar synonym for meekness as humility. To be meek is to be humble. So naturally, to be meek or to be humble is the opposite of being what? Prideful. And so Jesus here is addressing the concept of humility versus pride. Proverbs 16, 19 says, It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil of the proud. So there's this contrast in Scripture between being humble and being prideful. The reason that I think that this passage is particularly impactful for me as I was studying it, uh, again, is, is that, you know, and this may come of no shock to anybody, but I happen to be a prideful person. And if you think that you are a prideful person, then you happen to be a prideful person as well. And so I think that we can, at the root of every sin that we'll ever struggle with in this world, no matter how, you know, boisterous or how seemingly meek, and we're going to get into this later, um, a, a personality may be, at core of all sin is the sin of pride. It's, we have this weird view of humility in the world today where we view if someone is, is loud and charismatic and very comfortable in front of a crowd or they have that kind of out, outgoing personality, we view them as, okay, those are the people over there that are going to struggle with pride. And then we view the people over here, and we even call them meek, right? If they're, if they're quiet, they, they keep to themselves, they never confront anyone or anything, really. They talk, talk quietly or rarely. We'll say, okay, well, those, are the, those people are meek. We have this weird view of what humility is in this um, world. And that's, so that's one of the things that I want to address today. Um, so as we look at humility, I think that is how we're going to better understand what it is to be prideful. So humility is many things, but we're going to address a few of them. So number one. Humility is to put others above yourself. Go with me to Philippians 2 real quick. Philippians 2, right at the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to read the first four verses. So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having some, the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, others, or let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of, of, of others. So something really, really weird happened to me this morning. I woke up this morning and had a thought come to my mind. 
And as the, the day progressed, I continued to dwell on this thought. And you know what that thought was? It was about me. From the second I woke up this morning, all I thought about was me. And what it says here is that it says the, the, the proud person thinks of themselves. The humble person thinks of others. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. Or not thinking of your, uh, less of yourself, yes. So it's not about this. True humility is not this self-deprecating, tearing yourself down, um, beating yourself up all the time. That's not true humility. He says true humility is thinking of yourself less. And there is a difference. And what I love about the Philippians passage here is it says that, that true humility is that you consider others, what, more significant. It's not that you just think of other people, right? Like we thought of our children when they were crying and when we woke up this morning, right? We thought about other people as we passed them on the street, uh, the street as we're driving here. We thought about other people as we were interacting with other, one another in church, right? But what is humility? Humility is considering them more significant. How many of you honestly today, this morning, coming to church, myself included, and, I, and look, I'm, I'm getting up here to preach on this stuff. How many of y'all actually could say that you thought of one person today more, more significantly than you thought of yourself? That's humbling. So number one, it, true humility is to consider others as more significant than yourself. Number two, true humility, uh, humility is the realization that, that you need wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So what Proverbs is saying here is that humility and wisdom are a package deal. You aren't humble and you're not, and not wise, and you're not truly wise and not humble. I think this passage is super interesting because in today's world, there are a lot of people in the secular world that will claim wisdom, Right? There's a lot of professors, there's a lot of, you know, political figures, there's a lot of um, people on the internet, which, you know, you can always trust us on the internet, so there's, there's a lot of people out there that will claim a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge. But the Bible says that if it's not rooted in, in the gospel, then what does it call them? Fools. True hum- humility is the understanding that you need wisdom. In other words, what you don't know is more important than what you know. Now, why is that true? Because then what you don't know can be your friend. Meekness isn't about debasing yourself. It's about the realization that you don't know enough. And you, the way you know that you know that you don't know enough is because your life isn't what it could be or what it should be, right? We always know that there's another... There's, whether we're looking at it in pure practical terms and you're not where you probably should be in life compared to what the, the resources that God has given you. So that's one way of looking at it, but it's a really shallow way of looking at it. But like our character, right? There's a lot of ways in our character that we sh- where we should be that we aren't, that we know we could be because God has promised that we can be there, but we aren't. True humility knows that, it, that you don't know enough. There's all sorts of fallouts that come from the fact that, that now what you don't know can be your friend rather than your enemy. One of the fallouts is that you won't lie to protect your image. We've all been there, right? Like someone 
you say something, someone, and, and you know, to use a, a modern terminology, debunks it, right? And then what do you do? You got to cover. You got to cover up that image. You can't let them know that you, you can't let them know. You'll beat them down. You'll try to disprove that, right? So you're not lying to protect your image. Another one is you won't attack other people with the truth. So there's these little things called white lies, right? There's also these things called black truths that at the core are true, but you're just using it as a club to beat other people up. Another one is not isolating yourself to avoid the truths and convictions that God has put on your heart. So this is something that some, a lot of people will do that, you know, there, there's, there's multiple realms here where you have these people that will always vent to you what's going on in their lives, right? Which, and th- there's an aspect of that that's very healthy, but there's also an aspect of that that's not, Right? Because it's, it's, it can be used inappropriately, I guess, to always be putting people at your service. But there's also these, the group of people that we would classify, you know, traditionally as, the, as meek that will, they'll isolate themselves. And it's not just the, the, the people that are quiet, right? The loud people like me can do this too. You isolate yourselves by beating down and beating away everybody that tries to come in and help you in your life. And God will put these convictions in your heart and in your mind. And what do you do? You isolate yourselves. So when someone confronts you about that thing, what do you do? They, they don't, they're not really for me. Or you'll just pull away. That's pride. So being meek is eager to learn. James 1.9 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The essence of meekness is, an, is a teachableness and a reasonableness. I think we can all agree in here that, that, that a reasonableness um, is, a, is a quality that is lacking in today's world in this country. Probably around the world, but we know what's around us. And, you know, a teachableness is not the idea of, okay, well, you have your opinion over there, and I have mine, so we'll just agree to go our separate ways, right? Or we'll agree to you're going to live your life over here this way, and I'm going to live my life over here this way. That's really, that's postmodernism, right? What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But we never address the fact that what's happened, what happens when what's true for me says what's true for you is wrong. A true humble person will submit their opinion to the standard of truth. And I would submit that the standard of truth is God's word. So humility is considering others more significant than yourself. Humility is, too, that you need, you know you need wisdom because you lack wisdom and is pursuing wisdom. Number three, I love this one. John Piper defines humility as the opposite of a sense of entitlement. So the, the basic premise here is do you walk through life with the mentality, you owe me? Oftentimes, we aren't even aware that we act this way. This is why pride is so different, uh, so dangerous. You know, you walk through life, you owe me a certain look when I walk past you. You owe me a certain behavior when I'm in, your, in the neighborhood, right? We were, Lisa was sharing me a funny story this morning of this, uh, this next-door group for our neighborhood, and someone in there was complaining about an issue. I won't get into the issue from the pulpit, but was complaining about an issue and their mentality behind it, although probably factually true, the mentality behind it was, you owe me this. We live next to one another. You owe me this. And so there's, there's a difference between 
someone wronging you and you holding them accountable for that, but do you walk through life with, an, with a mentality of, this person owes me this, this group of people owes me this mentality? Another one that hits home to me, you owe me that chips and salsa when I sit down before I get my drink. You owe me, and when you don't, owe, when you don't give it to me, I get mad. That's a, that's a sign. You're, go, you, you're going somewhere. You're in a rush to get somewhere on the street. You're driving, right? And that person living their life completely oblivious to what's, you know, the, the thing that you're late for, that you could have been early for, but you decided to sleep in a little bit longer. And what? They owe me to get out of my way. There's no grace in that way of living. If your basic orientation is you owe me, then you're not humble. And I'm not humble. And you need to pray for your church leadership because we're not humble. There's no grace in that way of living. Because that way of living always results in the mentality of is, if it's, it's never my fault. It's always someone else's fault, right? It never holds accountable that, hey, I might have caused that. If I'd have got up a little early, then I wouldn't be a rush on the street, and then that person wouldn't owe me to get out of my way. I know that's a silly example, but it's, it's all a, a deeper root. The other thing that it results in is when it uh, not being your fault is that when people fail you, it completely rocks your foundation. If, I would only, if they would have only done X, or if I would have only had Y, then I would have been successful. Or maybe it's more towards the Lord. I don't trust God because when I had this situation happen in my life, God didn't come through. And that's how you, you get the de-churched because they constantly want to put God in their debt. They're good, 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 and they'll let something bad happen to them, right? Then, well, I did all those things for you, God. Where were you when I needed you? A sense of entitlement. Another thing that happens um, when you're humble is you don't, so number one, you consider others more significant than yourself. Number two, you're looking for wisdom. Number three, you don't have a sense of entitlement. And number four, you don't grumble and complain. Man, this one was a tough one for me. It's so easy for us to minimize the sin of grumbling and complaints, isn't it? And this stems out of a sense of entitlement, but I put it separate because I think it's particularly applicable. It's so easy for us to just live our lives and be characterized by this consistent low drone of complaining underneath that, that characterizes our life. What this does is this exposes that, if, that we believe that if we were actually in charge of everything, that if we were the sovereign, then everything would go fine. If you believe that God is sovereign, then you must also say that every moment of complaint and grumbling is actually a complaint against God. You've ne- Paul David Tripp said it like this. You've never had a moment of neutral grumbling in your entire life. Neutral complaining. It's never justified. Is your life a life of grumbling, or is it a life of, or a hymn of praise? It's way too easy for us to come in here and sing songs with, with, with Lagan and Matt, Great is Thy Faithfulness, these songs, 
and then moments later, immediately after service um, ends, start complaining about something. You're up here sing- we're up here singing, great is thy faithfulness. Always great is thy faithfulness. But the second that we get back into our own world, his faithfulness ain't so great. You've never had a neutral grumble in your entire life. And so my question is, are you resting in your Redeemer? I know that I, you know, I'm prideful. Once again, this comes to no surprise to anybody that knows me. But I'm prideful. And when I'm not, when I'm grumbling, complaining, these sorts of things, I'm not trusting God. I'm not resting in God. I think one reality that we can all agree on that's, that's a pretty a standard in life is that we're going to experience suffering at one point, right? And that it's not, it's not just this abstract concept, concept, but suffering's real, right? And sometimes it's just, it just happens and, and you're in the midst of it. My pastor used to say, you know, my, where we came from, that you're either going into a period of trial, you're either in a trial or you're coming out of a period of trial. That there's a basic cycle in life like that. And that if you aren't addressing the fact that suffering's real, then you're going to be blindsided by it. One of the scariest things that I've ever seen in my time in ministry, in my time in law enforcement, in my time just living amongst uh, friends in a community of believers, is when someone's going through a trial, they isolate themselves or refuse help. It's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. The reason it's so scary is because when that crisis hits and it's coming, or when they're in the midst of a crisis, if you don't have a foundation of a community around you and a foundation with the, with the Lord, you'll have nothing to lean on when, the, when you need it. I was, I was at a conference recently, and a guy put it like this. He said, so in my line of work, when we have, a, when we have conferences or meetings, people hand out business cards, right? Because it's just an easy way to start to develop, open up and develop a relationships. Hey, this is how you can get in contact with me. Here's what I can offer you. Here's what you can offer me, yada, yada, right? And then you develop these relationships over time as you begin to work together. But one of the things that's a missing step for a lot of people in my line of work is that you have to intentionally develop those, those relationships and spend time around them, right? Because if you just call that person in a moment of crisis, your emergency isn't necessarily going to be their emergency. But if you're not developing that, that, that relationship when times are chill, then when you need it, it won't be there. And so this, this phrase was, if you're handing out business cards at a crisis, you're too late. And I love this because, you know, it's so important for us to develop those relationships so that we don't become isolated and isolate ourselves when the crisis happens. Because when you don't let other people into your life, the real reason behind that is, is, is pride. It's pride. I don't want them to see me in, in reality for who I am. This is the same reason we don't confess our sins before the Lord, right? Which is like the most idiotic thing that we can do because God already knows. He knew before you did it that you were going to do it. So it makes no sense to practically to, to withhold that stuff from the Lord. And so what do we do? We, we in, are involved in X sin that we struggle with. And what, you like don't talk to God for a little bit because you think you, like, I can't come to God right now. I need to let a little time pass. And then somehow within that time, 
I will have holied myself up, and now I can talk to God about that thing that happened three weeks ago, and isn't so much of a big deal anymore, but I still probably need to, like, check that box and make sure God's cool with it, right? That's pride. There's no greater time to come to the Lord than in the midst of a struggle. The other thing that it does is if you're not developing those relationships in the downtimes because of your pride, the only thing you're doing here is you're setting yourself up to be the victim, right? Because then I went through that crisis. No one in that church stepped up to help me in that crisis. So therefore I tried, so I'm not going to try anymore. It doesn't change anything. You're, you're still going to be going through that trial but you haven't opened yourself up to that church community to be there for you because of pride. So humility is a ton of things, but it's definitely that you consider others more important than yourself, significantly more important than yourself, that you pursue wisdom, that you don't have a sense of entitlement, and that you're not a grumbling and complaining person, and that you are not isolating yourself. So the reward, what, is it, what, what does it mean here when it says that, to, that the, the meek shall inherit the earth? Or in Psalm 37, inherit the land, which land is earth. Um, the most important thing that we can ask about any beatitude, and any scripture for, for that matter, or anything that happens to us in life, the most important thing that we can ask about any of these beatitudes is what does it say about God? The Sermon on the Mount and the entire Bible, I know this may come as a shock to, to a lot of us in here, the Bible is not about you. You are not David, and your struggle is not Goliath, okay? You're not Daniel, and your struggles aren't the lions in the den, right? Jesus was the true David. You aren't David in that story. The point there is that the rewards are ultimately about eternal things. If you think that the goal of humility is primarily to obtain all these, these useful character traits so that your life can be better in this world, then you're missing the point of humility. The primary reason the Bible was written and the primary reason that we are humble is because it brings glory to God. It removes myself from, this, from, the, from the equation of bringing God glory. Jesus wrote the Sermon on the Mount in order to develop a people that would be more able to bring him glory. So, what are some, a few of the rewards of being humble that have an eternal impact? That has come as a result of being humble. One, you actually practice trust in God. When you're humble, then you don't think of yourself as the sovereign. You actually, that actually opens you, yourself up for the ability to trust God in your circumstances. Because when, you're, when you got it all under control, you don't need God, right? When you got it under control, you're not going to come to God. And then when a crisis happens, all of a sudden you don't have it under control. That's when you need God. When in reality, you needed him all along. So one, you will practice, practice tr- true trust in God. Number two, as it says in the the psalm there, that you'll have an abundant peace. You'll have peace in life. If you find yourself just worrying all the time, stressing yourself out, if you find yourself just 
things seem to be unraveling every turn and you can't quite get a grip on it, it's because you don't actually trust God. You're not humble. No matter how quiet and calm and reserved you may feel, you're not humble. So being humble gives you a peace. You aren't swayed by and controlled by the words of others, by the actions of others. If someone does something to you or says something to you and it just rocks your foundation and rips it out from under you, then you're not humble. Your reality, your, your image is tied up in who you are and not who God is. Another one is that you can wait patiently for the Lord. One of the ways that we've seen this recently, so we're moving to Virginia, and Zoe's getting, my oldest Zoe is getting to the point where we want to put her in like a, a little preschool. Well, not only is the public school system up there different than a lot of the country, but it's also different, well, especially from down here, but it's also different uh, in the church. The churches up there are different too. And so we have to be really careful the, the, the school that we're putting our, our kid into. Because I'm entrusted to that, right? I'm entrusted with, with my child and what she's learning. And I want her to learn the Bible. And so one of the ways that we are able, to, that I've seen being humble, trusting the Lord and waiting on him, is waiting for God to open up one of these schools up there for her because we're on a waiting list for all of them. And there's a chance that we might not get in. But one of the ways that I can practice humility is not try to force my hand. See, I'm one of those guys that when I want something, I'm going to call you seven times. Like, I'm going I'm to email you. I'm going to have a record of it. Like, I'm going to, you know, and there's some, some wisdom to that to, in today's world to, to put it in writing. Like, I'm not saying that all that stuff is terrible, right? But some of us have, have too many friends that are too, too in good places, Right? And what that does is it causes us to trust them and use our resources rather than sit back and trust God. There's a huge difference there. And I'm not saying that we, you go through life acting like a lame duck and not try to go out and do things, right? What I'm saying is that when God puts you in a position to trust him, that you do that. And you don't try to work yourself around it and wait, um, work yourself out of it. There, it's all throughout Scripture. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. A third thing that you'll get from being hum- uh, humble is that you'll be released from a life of anger, bitterness, grumbling, vengefulness, and worry. If any of those characteristics are you struggle with, then you're prideful. And I'm prideful. I'm talking to myself in this sermon. That's why this is so impactful for me. If you find yourself always having to get even, then you're not, then you're, then you're not humble. Another one is, as Proverbs 11.2 we read earlier, is that you will become wise. If you humble yourself before the Lord, you will become wise. Because then you'll learn to trust God and look to God for, for wisdom. The fifth thing, and I like this one, is, is you won't be defensive. So this one is particularly impactful for me. You ever heard the, uh, the saying that, that Moses was the meekest person that ever existed? Well, it comes from a uh, place in Numbers 12. So turn to me to Numbers 12 real quick. So in Numbers 12, you have Moses, and I'm not going to read the whole story, but you have Moses with uh, Miriam and Aaron. And basically, um, 
Miriam and, and Miriam and Aaron were speaking against Moses in reference to uh, this Cushite woman um, who he had married. And they say to Moses, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful he is faithful in all my house with him i speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles and behold and he beholds the form of the lord why then were you afraid uh, not afraid to speak against my uh, servant moses and the anger of the lord was kindled against them and he departed the point of the story here and why moses was meek is you would have expected moses in that moment if you're like me for and when when they start talking against moses him be like, wait, well, hold up a sec. Check yourself. I'm Moses. You're not. I speak to God as a friend. But Moses didn't do that, did he? He chilled. He just sat back. And what does it say? God heard. There's this, there's this mentality that I have and that we have in this world that every time someone says, someone, someone says something, right, and you see this is why I don't like, I don't, we're not on social media anymore that I don't like watching the news. It's because it, it, it creates in me a mentality to always defend myself. To always, well, I gotta, we gotta set the record straight on this thing, right? Or you hear these people talking about something that you know is false and you insert yourself into that situation, right? Or someone says something to you, what's the natural reaction? To defend yourself. Moses doesn't do that here. A meek person hands over their, their causes to God instead of defending themselves. Meekness is an absorbent disposition. A boxer doesn't train against a porcelain statue. What does he do? He trains against something that gives. That's what meekness creates in us. It's an ability to absorb, absorb, absorb. Why? Because God hears. And God will address things in his time. A meek person that trusts the Lord absorbs. A meek person that trusts the Lord isn't someone that shatters at every hit, explodes and, and into the face of every person that hits him. A meek person absorbs. This is how Jesus acted. This is how we are to act. Two more things. Boldness, boldness meekness allows you to have boldness when you act. You're slow to anger, but not never angry. It doesn't say that Jesus never got angry, right? But he was slow to anger. So what happened when he was angry? His anger was justified. If you're one of those people that gets angry at every little thing, no one's going to trust you when you get angry about something. Oh, there he is again, flying off the hinges. No one trusts that person to trust them as a standard of what actually you should be angry about. This is why in this outrage culture we have no one trust it, right? Because everything's a huge deal. 
you restore a brother or sister with, in sin with gentleness, not avoid confrontation. You have boldness when you restore someone, right? It's not that you never confront someone. That's not what it says in Galatians 6. It says what? You restore them with a the spirit of gentleness, not that you avoid confrontation. You know when to confront, though. That's also a huge distinction. Because you know that when you act, you've been waiting on the Lord, and the Lord has called you to act, not emotion. And the last thing that we're going to talk about that you uh, get when you um, practice humbleness is that you will inherit the earth, and that's obvious from the beatitude. God will not, the, the point here is that God's not going to keep anything from you. We're so worried that things are going to slip through our fingers if we don't act. I do this. And God's already said, look, if you trust me, I'm going to give you everything. Everything. You just got to trust me. Don't go out there and try to grab every little thing. It's not about being missing that opportunity. Oh, man, if I don't act right now, I'm going to miss that opportunity and never see it again. Blah, 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 blah. This is how we act on Black Friday, right? Like that thing in a year ain't going to be on sale again. And you didn't need it this year anyway. You probably didn't need it in general. But this is how we act, right? If I don't do this now or step up to the plate right now, then I'll never get this opportunity ever again. Guess what? You're not going to die. Like you're going to be fine. Trust the Lord. Wait on him. There's, we don't, if you realize that your God is the creator and owner of everything, then you'll never feel the need to brag and boast about what you got. This is why this is one of the most amazing things to me is despite the millions and millions and millions of dollars that went through her charity, Mother Teresa died with like two changes of clothing. She understood that there's no need to accumulate this, this stuff, this type of this side of heaven when God's, God owns it all and he's already promised it to you. So when you feel stuff-itis, as my mom would call it, or you feel this, this need to, I have to go pursue this thing right now when you know God, it's not God's timing. Or God is shutting these doors left and right and you just keep looking for that 50th door to open. Trust the Lord. He's never let me down. And usually when I force my way through a door, I pay for it later. So what's the, what's the source of humility? Who in the world can be like this? This is such a high calling to be meek and humble. It almost seems impossible. Who can be like this? Paul in Romans 1.14 says that he was under obligation to the Greek and the non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, he was obligated to everyone. The point is, is that no one owed him anything. Paul understood this. He was indebted to everyone. But where does that come from? That mentality, right? Where does that come from? I want to go back to Philippians 2. Right after verse 4, we left off last time, it says, Have this mind, this mind of humility, right, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That mind is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, by being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the, um, to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
you become humble by being stunned by the gospel. Until you are stunned by what Jesus has done, you'll never be humble. You'll never be. It's impossible for those who are not not in Christ to please God, as Romans 8 says. It's impossible to be humble unless you are captivated by the gospel. You will always be, be owned by a sense of entitlement, and you owe me, or I got this, if you aren't captivated by, by what Christ did. When you're captivated by the truth that you were owed hell, but you receive heaven, if you're a believer, if you trust him, then that's when humility happens. John Calvin said, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by his awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And look, I know it's a battle. But if you focus on the gospel, your orientation will change. If you don't, you'll never change. Because God's the source of change. He's the one that changes the heart. And I'll never change. And you have to preach yourself to the gospel every day. You see, it's the devil's main business to keep you from seeing the glory of God. This, it's not the devil's main business to send, to send his servants to come and terrorize you in the night. That's not his main business. Does he do that? Yeah, he does that. But it's not his main business. The devil can do all kind of crazy stuff to you. The most, his most effective tool is just to get you to not look there. That's his most effective tool. That's why his most effective tool is to get you to really buy into that you need to satisfy yourself on this side of heaven. That's his most effective tool. That's why this country is so dangerous to live in. We're so comfortable. When you look at the cross and you look at the Bible, do you see God as glorious? That's the battle against grumbling and pride and selfishness is that you see God as glorious. More glory in, in God than you find in relationships. More glory than you find in success. More glory, he is more glorious than, than food, than possessions. Do you, think, do you find him more glorious than that? You will never devote your life to magnifying God by being satisfied in him until you see that the ultimate essence of evil is preferring anything to God. You'll always pursue your, your pride. So I'm going to leave you today with this, with this encouragement. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach his truths in this word into your mind, into your heart. Let it come from your mouth. Flood your soul with his promises. He pursues you with goodness and mercy, Psalm 23, 6. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84, 11. Great is your reward in heaven, Luke 6, 23. He will complete the work that he has begun in you, Philippians 1, 6. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and mercy, Philippians 4, 19. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4, 13. All things work together for my good, Romans 8, 28. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, Romans 8, 39. Don't give this thing a little touch before you leave and go off to do what you really want to do that day. Flood your mind and your heart with this word. This is, this is food for your soul. 
sustenance for your soul. This is the source. Jesus is the source for becoming a more meek and humble person and therefore glorifying God and therefore being more at peace in your life, to be more satisfied with, with where you are. Flood your mind. Inundate yourself with the gospel. That's my plea. And the last thing I'll say is, is I said earlier that, that you'll never magnify God by being satisfied in God until you realize that the ultimate essence of evil is, is to prefer anything of him, above him. But this isn't, this isn't deeds, right? I wonder how many of us try to fight this battle of becoming a better, a better person on the level of deeds. Like, I'm, if I only do this, 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 then I'll be, then I'll be better, right? The devil want, is laughing at us when we try to fight this battle on the, on the front of deeds because it's a battle you can never win. You'll never be good enough on your own power. You'll, you can't will yourself. I mean, and I know that you feel this, right? Like, you can't just will yourself into a spirit of humility. The question is, is, is rather not, how do I become humble? But what are you satisfied by? Are you satisfied by that next thing? Are you satisfied by being viewed as a certain type of person? Are you satisfied by the God? This is the battle that will satisfy your soul. On the level of, what are you satisfied by? And it's not this thing where you make a decision, right? And I've said this before the last time I preached. Seeing God as glorious, like no one goes to the Grand Canyon and says, looks at it in all of its majesty and and then steps back and goes, all right, now let me make a decision on whether this is glorious or not. That's, That's silly, right? Like no one would think of the Grand Canyon that way. God is the same way. You don't look at something that's glorious and majestic and beautiful and all satisfying and all compelling and then step away and say, now I've got to make a decision, right? No, he just is glorious. The Grand Canyon just is majestic. So the question is, is do you view God as glorious and all satisfying? Or are you pursuing other things? Flood yourself with the gospel. Flood yourself with God's word. He is the power to become more meek and humble. And I promise you the rewards will follow because his word says that they will. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for that you've promised, as the scripture says, that you will complete the work that you've begun in me. God, if we follow you and we, and we are loved by you, God, We know that you have begun to work, and we can feel it. And we can feel that when we try to do it on our own power, God, that we're like spinning tires in mud. We get nowhere. God, I pray that we would have, that we would grip and find traction in the gospel and that we would flood our minds with your word and therefore flood our minds with truth about you. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that we are not powerless, that the God who created this world, who created us, who created everything, has promised to supply all of, our, all of us with what we need. 
and that he will supply, as Philippians 4.19 says, that my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. We love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.